People in positions of authority cannot know everything that takes place under their governance. But there are times when people in authority are rightly held accountable for what they have failed to know. Presidents and army generals, city officials, and school administrators and head coaches and program directors are sometimes justly indicted for what they have failed to understand. While they cannot know everything, it is their job to oversee those under their watch and to assure as far as humanly possible that they are not involved in some sort of illegal activity. Take, for instance, a a certain university athletic program that's cited for widespread and egregious recruiting violations. It's a whole culture. The program is corrupt to the very core. And a microphone gets shoved in the face of the head coach, and the head coach says, I have done nothing wrong, and I knew nothing about this. Is that going to work? Not going to work, is it? A head coach of a program under investigation is going to realize very quickly that he is held responsible. Listen, maybe you did not do anything personally wrong, but it's your job to know that these things are going on. It's your job to create a culture in which such violations just don't happen. Presidents whose governments fund terrorists and generals whose armies commit war crimes and city administrators whose offices embezzle money are rightly held accountable for what is happening under their watch. Now there's an irony here when it comes to our understanding of God. By seeking to protect God from charges of wrongdoing, there are a significant number of Bible interpreters who basically put God in that place. Of one in a position of authority who does not know what's going on. He is a God who does not sin Himself, but He is a God who ought to know that people are sinning, but He does not. He does nothing to change it. He does nothing to stop it. In fact, He can't, ultimately. As we bring the series on divine providence to close, it's fitting that we expose this error, that we learn to avoid it and to understand it. This theological error is known through the centuries by various names, but we will refer to it by a popular title, Open Theism. In simplified terms, Open Theism claims that God knows all that has come to pass. God knows all that could have come to pass. God knows all that is taking place. But God does not know what human beings will freely choose to do in the future. The future is, and hence the title, open. That is, God does not even entirely know what He will do in the future until people make their choices of what they're going to do and He adjusts to what they do. So put in theological terms, God does not possess exhaustive foreknowledge. He does not know the future choices that people will make. Now the beauty of this way of thinking, we are asked to believe, is that Thereby, we exonerate God of having anything to do with evil. But if we are forced to conceive of God in this way, it seems to me that He becomes a governor who should be held accountable for not knowing better. Isn't that what God's job is? To know what's taking place in His universe? And is this what the Bible teaches about God? How do people arrive at such conceptions of God? I think the answer is helpful. The answer to these questions provides a helpful study for us in the application of divine providence as we make our way to the end of the series. And it's a reminder to us of how our earnest agendas can so easily drive us away from God's revealed truth. There's a case study here in that. But as we work our way through this, to come back to the Word of God and to know what He says and to be stabilized in it, does God know the future? Does He know what you will choose to do? What does Scripture teach? 
we return then to last week's consideration of the understanding of divine providence that emerges, generally speaking, from the teachings of Jacobus Arminius, a 16th century theologian. Now let's just uh, go back in our own consideration here, just briefly, for those that perhaps weren't with us last week. Some of you that are excited about these things, others have to really struggle through this, but there's points here that are necessary. So let's just remember, as we looked last week, that when we consider the relationship between the sovereignty of God, His rule, His authority, His governance of this world, we look at the sovereignty of God, and we put that together with the free will of man, which of the two do we prioritize? We don't deny either one, but we must prioritize one over the other. We start, as Scripture teaches, with God who ordains and governs all that comes to pass. Who, as Ephesians 1.11 puts it, works out all things according to the counsel of His will. We must never deny that man has free will. This is the second thing that we established, have been over through this series, and as we looked at it again last week, we must never deny that man has free will. He is held morally responsible before God, genuinely so, with two qualifiers. We must remember, as Scripture teaches, that our free will works compatibly with God's sovereign will. The two operate fully together at the same time. It's a both and, not an either or. Second qualifier, our human will is restrained by the sin nature and by the circumstances that prevail. So we've argued against the idea of absolute libertarian freedom. We are free, we choose what we want, but what we're most inclined to want. As our nature pushes us in certain ways, and as circumstances lead us in certain ways, we will choose according to what we want, but we don't have absolute freedom to choose anything that might be chosen. This we've sought to establish for some time as we've poured over Scriptures week in and week out. Many Bible interpreters prioritize human freedom. And they adjust God's sovereignty to fit in around the main piece of human free will. They believe that to uphold the truth of man's free will, they, they that must insist that God chose to make man without knowing whether or not people would sin. So having decreed to make creatures in His image with free will, God could then look down the corridors of time and see, indeed they will sin. I can see ahead in my foreknowledge, my foresight, I can see what they will choose and they will sin. But it's only after He decrees to make man with free will that He sees that sin will be. So God limits His sovereignty, they say, to largely respond to the free choices that people make. What is all important is free will. We fit in the sovereignty of God around that, saying that God limits His sovereignty in order to preserve free will. Open theism runs down this track of prioritizing the free will of man, but it has some problems at this place. It has a grievance with what we might call classic Arminianism. Open theists see a major problem here. In fact, they believe this way of thinking does not go far enough to preserve the free will of people. So they rightly conclude that if God foresees the choices people will make in the future, they will make those choices. If we must choose as God foresees we will choose, we cannot choose otherwise. God has already foreseen it. It will come to be. God's exhaustive foreknowledge renders certain all that comes to pass. He's looking down from eternity past down the corridors of time and He sees what we will do. We're going to do it because He's already foreseen it. So if God foresees in eternity past that Eve will eat the forbidden fruit, what is going to happen when Eve stands there before Satan considering about eating the fruit? She's going to eat it. 
And you have to ask there, if human free will is really all important to you, is she absolutely free to not choose to eat the fruit? Not really. Because God's already foreseen that she would. So this is what troubles open theists. Because if Eve does not have absolute power to choose not to eat the fruit, to choose contrary to what God foresees she will choose, then Eve is not fully free. But what's at the agenda here is we must maintain human freedom. So bent to defend the free will of man as a priority over the sovereignty of God, that is, God limits His sovereignty to maintain the free will of man, open theists go one step further and they say God doesn't know the future. Because if He does know the future, people are not absolutely free to choose one way or the other. They will certainly choose what He foresees, so He doesn't foresee it. There is a denial of exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Exhaustive, that is, God knows all that will come to pass. Open theists generally teach that God determines some things that will happen, some things He will choose to do, but that the future is also comprised of open possibilities. Realities that will only be determined at the moment that free will creatures make their decisions. So not only does God not ordain all that comes to pass, He does not even know all that will come to pass in the vast majority of cases because free will creatures are making their decisions and they have absolute freedom to choose one thing or another. God finds out what they're going to do when they do it. A spokesperson for this way of thinking, Clark Pinnock writes in his book, Predestination and Free Will, Decisions Not Yet Made Do Not Exist Anywhere to Be Known Even by God. I want you to think carefully of that first sentence. Decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known by God. He, there is no foreknowledge. There is no foresight of what will happen even. They are potential, God knows all the potential possibilities, yet to be realized, but they're not yet actual. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. We're not going to think on that sentence very long, but there's some serious folly there. How good a predictor is God? He can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do. God, too, faces possibilities in the future and not only certainties. God, too, like us, moves into a future not wholly known because not yet fixed. So until human beings actually exercise their will and make choices in time, there's nothing there for God to know. Do you believe that? Is it what the Bible teaches? I don't want to sit very long in this, but I think it is faithful of us to at least give a little bit of time to say, where do you get that? Where does the Bible teach this? These are, on, to varying degrees, Bible-believing people although their Bibles are beginning to shrink before our very eyes, but, but they, they say they believe the Bible. So where do they turn to to say this? Where do they turn to to defend this? We'll look at just a few examples to just give a flavor of it. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Genesis 6, if you'll turn there to this passage of judgment in light of the world's corruption in sin. In this text, the open theists say, we find a place where it is clear that God does not know what human beings will choose to do. Genesis 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to his heart. 
He relented. We could even use the word, He repented of having made man. Oh, there you have it. God did not see sin coming. He did not anticipate how evil people would become. God has made a tragic mistake. With no ability to know what people would choose to do, He decides to create, but He has no ability to see what people will choose to do until they do it because they're being created with absolute free will. God created the world and the possibility of sin, and here now He discovers that sin has overwhelmed history. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and so God repented of what He had done. He relented of it. He responds here then, the open theist says, to correct the situation. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I repent that I have made them. God changes His mind. He relents is the interpretation here. The open theist says, not knowing that man would sin, God made a terrible mistake. He sincerely regrets and He puts history in reverse. From Creator now to one who judges and destroys. Knowing that He's made a mistake in a sense. He's relenting, repenting, changing His mind. He didn't see this coming. What is the truth of the matter? How should we read this text? Is this what it's teaching? The truth is that since God created the universe, He operates in time and space with genuine emotion. These are simply words that are saying, as we've established in weeks past, that God moves with His people. He really feels what's happening. And He indeed grieves in His heart because people have sinned. This verse is not teaching that God made a mistake but that his heart is grieved by sin and that there's a change in his relationship to man at this place that will lead him to judge. And I think really the answer is in verse 8, even though the Bible wasn't written to address open theism. But the answer is in verse 8. A word of grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's the answer. God permits Noah and his family to live. Now I ask you this question. I ask the open theist this question. Does God not know that man will continue to sin and rebel against Him? With all due honor, is God that dull? He creates Adam and Eve, and this is the result and now having the chance to bring sin to an end, He lets four couples live. Does this really answer anything for us? Is God so sentimental and weak that He just can't bring Himself to bring Noah to an end? If, as the open theist insists, God has nothing to do with the presence of sin, how can God be acquitted of letting Noah live and perpetuate a world of sin and misery? If it is true that God relents, repents of what He has done, what should we think now of a God who does it again? On the grounds of open theism, God is rather foolish and culpably negligent in the exercise of His authority to even permit the possibility that this sin would continue. What's the reality? In reality, the text is being completely misread. This is not the point at all. God ordains that sin be. He brings Noah through the flood with his family because he knows that sin will be. He ordains that it will be. He permits its presence with every intention of using people's free will choices to sin as a backdrop 
against which to display the glory of His name for the good of His people. We don't understand all of what God is doing, but we can have confidence He knows exactly what He's doing. There's nothing that slipped past Him. He's not weak. He's not sentimental. He's not negligent. He's not dull. That's not what this text is saying. It's simply speaking of God in terms of actual response to this sinful situation. God knows that sin will be. And He knows that it will be after He spares Noah. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12 is another support text. God learns from the free choices that people make, the open theist teaches us. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 22 and verse 12, we have here God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which seems to very much conflict with the promise of God, but Abraham trusts and obeys God in this excruciating test of faith. He lifts the knife to kill his son. and The angel of the Lord calls out to him in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, he says, here am I. And the angel of the Lord says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know. Bah, there it is, says the open theist. You see that God's learning. He did not know what Abraham would choose to do until he did it. So he says, now I know what you will do. Is God learning something? Is that what this verse is teaching us? Do we draw from this narrative that theological conclusion and find support for this on the basis of what God says here? Now I know. No, God is genuinely relating in time and space to Abraham. God has tested Abraham. God has not learned something he did not know, but he has established something in his relationship with Abraham. Now I know communicates something very significant to Abraham. Not that God has learned something, but that something has been established. And this is really how the argumentation goes, and we could carry it through Scripture. You know of other passages where it says that God relents, God repents, God in a sense seems to change His mind. And in His relationship with people, as that relationship is working out, it can be described that way. Exodus 32, he says, I will destroy the nation of Israel. 1 Samuel 15, I relent, I repent that Saul has been king. Jonah chapter 3, we're probably more familiar with, verses 3 and 5 and following. Open theists fail to realize that some of these passages, such as, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, are not promises their announcements. And the Hebrew text would indicate that very precisely in the case of Jonah's announcement. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, the open theist gets a hold of that and says, see here, God's making a promise or a prediction. He doesn't see that they're actually going to repent. And so when they repent, he changes his mind. He adjusts to the new circumstances and he does not destroy Nineveh. What we must understand in this case again is that this is a divine announcement that assumes that people may repent. There's a child playing out by the street, gets loose a little bit, and mom yells out the front door and says, you're going to get killed! Is that a promise? No, it's, it's, there's a lot that's filled in there that's understood there. The point is, you're going to get killed if you keep doing what you're doing, playing by the side of the road, but come away from that road right now and live. It's not a promise that God was wrong about what He predicted any more than this mom is predicting her child will get killed by a car and is proven wrong. It's just an announcement. It's a warning. It assumes repentance. And that's what's happening in Jonah 3. Not God changing His mind. Not God discovering something but God simply responding in real life and time to somebody who's repented, to a city that's repented. So open theists fail to realize that some of these passages describe God's change of mind as a means of expressing the extension of His mercy. He relents in the sense that He changes His stance 
toward repentant sinners. And we can read these texts in that way. So, what do open theists say? And we've only scratched the surface of their writings, but they would say these things. We need to understand this about their position. God does not know the future choices that people will make, and He's sometimes shocked by the choices they make. God adjusts on the fly to the choices that people make. He is ever learning, ever developing His strategy on the basis of what He learns about people's decisions. And sometimes what God predicts does not come true. He's just predicting like we do, and sometimes He's wrong. He was wrong with Nineveh. He predicted Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days. It didn't happen. I look at this God, this image of God, and I say such a God has no business creating a universe. There are things a sovereign God is responsible to know. Are we to believe that God chose to create the world with no idea that sin would happen? Are we to believe He created, in a sense, a monster without knowing it? He had this great idea of bringing this world into being, and He had no idea what capacities for evil He was actually bringing into being. He knew the possibility was there. He was willing to take the risk, but He didn't really know what would happen. And then having created the monster, we come to Genesis 6 and he almost destroys it, but he leaves a seed there for it to take root and to continue on. Are we to trust in such a God? Are we to not hold such a God accountable? It's interesting that what the open theists are doing is striving to say to, to exonerate God from the presence of evil, and in fact they create a God of their own making who's very culpable for sin. who's a foolish, negligent landowner who needs to be held accountable. But this whole idea needs to just be exploded because it's not what the Bible presents. The Bible presents a very different vision of God. A God who ordains all that comes to pass, including sin. He does not sin. He does not tempt he is not culpable for sin in any way, but He is sovereign over it. He does permit it. He works all things together for the glory of His name and the good of His people. And the Bible insists over and again that God knows all things, past, yes, present, yes, potential, yes, but also future. Do you believe that? Is that what the Bible says? Does it demonstrate that God knows what people will choose? There's not an infinite number of options here. It either does or it doesn't. When I read through all of these machinations with the text of Scripture, all of this working and all of this reasoning and trying to get God into this box or that box, I, I just feel dirty right about now. <laughs> I, feel, I just feel dirty. Let's come under the shower of God's Word. Let's let it speak and remind us again of what God has actually revealed. The revelation of God's exhaustive foreknowledge is pervasive in Scripture. And I'd like us to look at a few passages. Psalm 139 and verse 4 to begin with. We've looked at Psalm 139 verse 16 a number of times as it's so significant to this topic at hand. But verse 4 also of this psalm as David pens this psalm, speaks to this point. Does God know the free choices that we will make? Well, one of the free choices that people make is what to say. What words are going to come off of their tongue. Psalm 139, verse 4, David says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. There's no other way to read that than before we say something while it's still in our mind, and I think the understanding here is before it is in our mind, God knows it. Before it exists, He knows that word that's on our tongue. Remember verse 16? Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them 
Every one of what? Every one of the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The course of our life is based, we understand, on free choices that we make over and over again. God knows all of them, He says, before they ever were. This point is a crucial argument in the book of Isaiah as God seeks to wean His people from idolatry. It's a major theme. We'll pick it up at Isaiah 41. I'd like us to trace this theme. God is rebuking the idols of the nations. He is chiding Israel to abandon these worthless idols. God is the living God, the Maker of heaven and earth. He is a holy God, fully distinct from others. I want us to watch how He develops that theme, how He proves that theme. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. Isaiah 41, 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that You are God's. Now in the context here, he is working with the call of Persian king Cyrus. One small issue here to note, Cyrus doesn't exist. He hasn't been named. He hasn't been born. He won't be born for generations to come. And God is saying here, turn from your idols. I am the true and living God. I have called Cyrus, my servant, to come and to take down city-states. In some cases, they will even open the gates for him and they'll invite him in. This Persian king, Cyrus. Who? What kingdom is this? What king is this? Who's Cyrus? He doesn't exist yet. But I already know him. And I have already called him to make all of these free choices and to operate in this way. Now what I want you to do is call your idols and find out which one of them can tell the future. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter. That we may know that you are God by telling us what will come in the future what people will choose to do, you will prove that you are God's. It's a challenge that no one takes up, of course. And that's God's point. Verse 26, Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? So if someone declares it from the beginning, we will know that they are God's. And beforehand, that we might say He is right. There is none who declared it. None who proclaimed. None who heard your words. There is no idol. There is no idolater who can lay out the case for here is what the future will hold. But God alone. He has declared that Cyrus will come. The idols declare no such thing. And again, this point in chapter 42 in verse 8, I am the Lord. 42.8 That is My name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. You see the contrast. I will share my glory with no other gods because there are no other gods. And the proof of it is, I have told you what people will do. And it's come to pass. And I'm going to continue to tell you what people will do. And it will come to pass. And you will know that I am the living God. I am the author of history. These gods cannot offer any such proof of their existence. Chapter 45, verse 5. This theme just continues to pervade this section of Scriptures. God shows Himself to be the true and living God. 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides Me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know Me. Who's, who's He? Who's being equipped? Cyrus. You don't know who I am, Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't exist. Of course he doesn't know who God is at this point. You don't know who I am, but I know who you are. Notice verse 6 again. Why? 
that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides Me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I don't know how you say it any more clearly and distinctly in contrast to the open theist position. I do all these things. He's not tripping over himself to say people are operating with free will here and I'm standing back and restricting my sovereignty to let them go because I've created them that way and that's who they are. And I don't really know what is going to happen in the future. I'm kind of thinking here there might be a king that comes along. I don't know what his name will be. I'm not sure what his mom and dad are going to name him, but I I think I see this kind of coming. This is ridiculous. God is saying over and again, I know the future. I can tell you who's going to be born. I can tell you what they're going to do. And you watch. You watch. Generations from now, there's going to be a king named Cyrus who comes in and cleans out this area and will serve as my instrument to bring my people back to the land. You watch. I'm God. And there is no other. I will not share my glory with gods that are no gods. And here's the proof. I declare the end from the beginning, chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. 46, 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Things people haven't done. I will declare my purpose through what they do. 48, 3-5, it just continues throughout. We should get the point here as we're reading through Isaiah. 48.3, the former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. You see it there again. Before it came to pass, I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. To put it maybe in our words, God is saying, you have hard, hard heads. You're hard-hearted people that keep turning to your dead idols that can accomplish nothing. Remember this. I declared these things from of old because I know what's coming. Verse 11 of 48, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How? Should my name be profaned, my glory I will give, I will not give to another. Now, here's the point as we bring Isaiah's thinking to close. We'll move to one other passage here in just a minute. But stop here for this moment and grab this. This is frightening. But open theism denies to God the very attribute that He Himself cites as that which distinguishes Him from the idols. If you want to know that I'm not a dead God and an idol on a shelf, here's how you know it. I have told you the future. And there are people who read the Bible and say, no, He didn't. He couldn't. Why? Because human free will has stood up as the ultimate issue and then we read the Bible from that. We'll come back to that thought. But it's frightening. What Isaiah is arguing distinguishes God, people are saying, isn't real. God can't know the future. He says, my knowledge of the future proves I'm God. Which says we're coming very close to idolatry. Because we're creating a God in the image of man who doesn't know the future. I want to bathe 
a little longer. In the shower of God's Word, Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Let's purify our hearts as we know the foreknowledge of God. Daniel 11, this entire chapter, provides a stunning prophecy of events in the small kingdoms that would fill the power vacuum after the death of King Cyrus, who remembers generations from birth. So God has not only named this future king, now He's going to tell us blow by blow what's going to happen in the kingdoms that follow from this king. This chapter is a prophecy of political intrigue, of military developments, with detailed accuracy. Daniel writes, As for me, in chapter 11, verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. So there will not only be Cyrus, but there will be other kings who follow behind. And there will be a fourth king who is cut down in his youth. He shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. But, verse 4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Who's that king? Well, it's, 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 it's cryptic. You're not going to copy it in that day. But this is Alexander the Great. And anyone who has passed the history and looks back at it sees that it's Alexander the Great, whose kingdom was in fact divided up, what was he, 32 years of age, when he was speared in a minor skirmish that really shouldn't have happened, but he's brought down according to prophecy, and in his place come four rulers. That's in fact what happened. Toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. The king's going to drop... His kingdom divided four ways, but not to a son, which is normally what kings do to turn over their kingdom to their son, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. They won't be as powerful as his. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. What follows through verse 35 from verses 5 and following are pointed predictions of over 150 years of political maneuverings between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kingdoms. There's no one that looks at these things and says that's not what it's about. History has made clear that these prophecies have taken place. What people do is say Daniel must not be Daniel, it must be some other writer who wrote after they took place. They're that accurate. There's nobody denying the accuracy of them. They can only deny that Daniel wrote these prophecies. And they're wrong. But verse 5, we'll just poke our nose a little ways into this. Where we read, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her, textual variant, difficult to know there, but her in those times. Looking back in history, Daniel prophesied that Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, would give his daughter Bernice in marriage to Antiochus II, Theos, king of the Seleucid Empire. This prophecy was penned 280 years before it happened. He knows that there will be a movement by one king to send his daughter to the other. He knows that there will be this intrigue, there will be this murder. And indeed, Antiochus' banished wife, Laodice, 
would resist this move. She would organize a conspiracy to have Bernice and her infant son assassinated and have Antiochus poisoned to death. She will not retain her strength. She shall be given up as well as he who fathered her. Writes Daniel 280 years before these events. History then records how this prophecy is fulfilled. The daughter of the king of the south went to the king of the north for the purpose of forming an alliance, but she is given up. She's killed. Verse 7, And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. She will have a son who will attack. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. What Daniel prophesies here is, is what in fact happens, that Bernice's brother Ptolemy III will attack the Seleucid kingdom in retaliation. During this invasion, Ptolemy III will recover prized idols of silver and gold that had been taken from Egypt by the Persian king Cambyses several hundred years earlier. It's all right here. Remembering that Daniel writes over two centuries before any of these people are alive. Before these kingdoms existed she's going to go here be sent here this is going to happen they're going to die this person's going to retaliate coming up here and then they're going to leave the land at this time and we just keep going right down through this entire chapter blow by blow decision by decision choice by choice god lays it out because he's god i'd like us to consider this can we begin to fathom the innumerable choices and decisions and entailments that are required to bring about these events? And could you imagine, have you ever heard there's a, two people engaged to be married? It's a sad thing, sometimes perhaps it's good, but it doesn't happen often, but one of those persons says, I don't think so, before the wedding. I, I, I just, I'm going to back out of this. Does that ever happen? You realize that in this whole string of people over these numerous generations that if that had happened one time, Bernice would not have been born? It wouldn't be Bernice. And all of this prophecy would have fallen apart. But it happened precisely as God said. All of those human choices coming together to fulfill what God has prophesied. Matthew chapter 26. The last passage that we'll look at. I think I said that with the last one. That was not intentionally misguiding you. One more, and I think it's crucial for us because it brings us to our Savior. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30. Jesus is with His disciples. They sing a hymn. The upper room, they go out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd of the sheep of the flock, and the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. What we have here is one who has steeled his will to do the opposite of what Christ prophesies. Peter will not deny Christ this night. And Jesus says, yes, you will. Do you get the, is the way that the text flows to you Jesus saying, you know, I'm looking at the circumstances here and I, I think you're gonna I think somebody's gonna ask you 
about your loyalty to me tonight, and I, and I believe you're going to choose to deny me. That's what I would predict here. I really don't know. And I know there's roosters out there, and I'm not sure how often they're going to crow and at what single time, but, but I think you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. I mean, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. What Jesus is showing here is His omniscience being granted that by the Spirit at this point. He knows precisely what will happen. He knows how many times Peter will deny Him, that He will deny Him, though He insists He won't, and how that relates to the timing of the day and the crowing of this rooster. In a parallel passage in John 13, it's insightful. It says that the Scriptures will be fulfilled, says Jesus. He who ate My bread has lifted His heel against Me. I'm telling you this now. What does He mean? Judas will betray me. I know that he will make that choice. And Jesus says this, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Do you hear the echoes of Isaiah there? When I tell you, ahead of time, what this person will choose in all of its tragedy, then you will know that I am God. Because that's what God does. That's His power. One brief lesson here before we draw some thoughts to close and consider the challenge to our own heart. There's one thing I think for us certainly to learn here. And that is that it's always disastrous to permit apologetical motivations to overwhelm exegetical faithfulness. Well, what does that mean? Apologetics. We're going to defend the righteousness of God. We're going to defend the free will of man. Now we've got to do those two things. That's our agenda. No one's going to believe in a God who ordains evil. We know that. People suffer. There's difficulties and there's trials. We don't want to present a God like that, so we can't do that. We've got this apologetical agenda. We've got to defend God from any charge of evil. And we must maintain the free will of man at all costs. So working from that apologetical agenda, we're going to then go to Scripture and see if Scripture will support what we've established because it just has to be this way. That's always a mistake. And when you go down that route, there will be all kinds of entailments that lead you into dark alleys. The dominoes begin to fall, and it's not pretty. We must never tinker with the Word of God to make God palatable to what people insist He has to be. God is God, and we are His creatures. And it is our duty to let God tell us what is true and what is not to go to His Word and to work from there outward seeking reason. Not establish our priorities and then try to get the Bible to fit it. This is a methodology that is vital for every one of us. And we make these decisions in our mind. How do you think about what is real and who God is? You're going to go down one of these paths to sort of establish some certain things that you know just have to be this way and then go to the Bible and read through that grid. It will always lead you wrongly. God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. We must go to Scripture to hear what He is saying and to work it out from there. Sometimes our apologetical defenses of God are just things He's not very interested in. Sometimes they're blasphemous. Let him speak for himself and believe. If his word says that Jesus is both man and God, and it does, then it's our duty to believe it. We'll work it out in time. If God's word says that God is sovereign over all that comes to pass, that man is morally responsible for his free choices, it says both of those things, and we have to live with that with the both and and let it work itself out. Our faith may honorably pursue rational explanations, but rational objections must never dictate our faith. When reason elbows out faith in God's Word, God shrinks. His glory is dulled and the next generation is put at risk of losing the faith altogether. 
where this will eventually go is when we make God palatable to the world, we will eventually try to make the Gospel palatable to the world. And that can never be. The preaching of the cross, the message of salvation in Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul said. It was true in the ancient Greek world and it's just as true today. We can't make the Gospel rationally palatable. We can't make the image of God rationally palatable to people who are in rebellion against Him. It's a fool's errand. It's a destructive process. Don't go there. Just read the text. Now it takes a lot of time to work it out, to put it together with other texts, to keep working ourselves to understand what God's Word says, but always operate from the text out. Never from outside back in. The center is what God has revealed about Himself. So human authority figures, they cannot know everything, but they must be held accountable for knowing some things. But when we think of God as Creator and Sustainer of all, it is absolutely incumbent upon Him to know what would be. And thankfully, His Word actually proclaims that truth. We do not have a negligent overseer We do not have this mad scientist who's just concocted this thing and all of this evil has come of it and given the chance to put it to an end. He doesn't time and time again. That's not the picture at all. When He brought the world into being, He knew that sin would be. And He knew precisely how to use that evil world as a backdrop to present His glory and His majesty, and to demonstrate His love to His people. We don't have an overseer, a manager, an authority figure who doesn't know everything. We have one who knows everything. And in His infinite wisdom, He chose that sin would be, ordains that all that comes to pass will come to pass, and governs all of it for the glory of His name, for the good of His people. So there's no sin in God. That See, the whole project is, is faulty from the very beginning. How then do we justify evil in a world that God has created? We've worked through that over these weeks. But that's not the point. He is just. He is pure. He is right. He never tempts. But He is also sovereign and has permitted that sin would be and ordained its existence through people who chose it to put it into practice. All of it for His good for His glory and for our good. He is sovereign over all. And thus He is in the end great and greatly to be praised. When we begin to try to help God out, we destroy Him. We make Him smaller, putting Him into smaller and smaller boxes. But we look to the God of Scripture and we find here a God of absolute sovereignty in whom we can put full and complete confidence and trust at all times. Never ashamed. And here we find a God that we can genuinely worship. The God who lets all of this get out of His hand, that does things He doesn't know where it's headed, that is always discovering and trying to readjust, relenting and repenting. How do you worship that kind of a God? You walk into church with God's people or you walk into the shower and you lift up a song to sing and it's kind of dull because you have a small God. The God we see in Scripture is all-glorious. He is greater than our imagination can even stretch to conceive. He's a God before whom we should fall in adoration. This sovereign Lord and Savior who has everything to do with everything. Our Father, I pray in behalf of anyone who's separated from Christ, I pray that You would bring to saving faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, anyone who has not seen this glory. And I pray that You would unveil the eyes and permit them to see that glory even today according to Your will. I pray for those of us who know You as Savior, may we rejoice in who You are. And may our vision of You continue to increase and enlarge May we see Your sovereignty as a source of comfort and trust and thanksgiving. While we are confused and at times hurt 
by the trials and the suffering, the difficulties and the sins of people in this world and of our own, we thank You that we can trust that You are steering the ship. That You make no mistakes. And that nothing has ever escaped Your knowledge. We rest in this, we trust in it, and we thank You for this cleansing truth. Forgive us for all of us seek at times to mold You into the image we want You to be. To stuff You into our little boxes because it's there that we're more comfortable. God, I thank You for this unfettered vision of Your exhaustive foreknowledge and sovereignty. And while we stand before this wonder in awe, we pause together in prayer before You in abject spiritual poverty and say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. May nothing limit our vision but our own humanity and sanctification. And may You continue to reveal to us the greatness and the wonder of Your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.